You know, that's the thing was with the Olympics. There's so many little things that are happening in the background. I wish they wouldn't just always focus on the U.S. athletes is that you can pick up and learn and their routines and how their mindset is set and how they're observing and how they're taking notes and how they're talking to their coaches and how they're all those things are invaluable to shaping an overall better athlete. And any of us as masters athletes could easily apply all that input. Those that, that just because they're doing it better, stronger, faster, higher, doesn't mean they're doing it smarter. That's the athlete's mindset again, right? We're capable of doing everything the same way, with the same approach, with the same methodology, with the same psychology. Now, can we dunk a basketball? Probably not, but can we? go through the same prep and mindset and, and lead into it? Yes. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 164. The Weekly Word Podcast is a resource for ultra-endurance athletes. We not only discuss ultra-endurance training, mindset, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, we dive deep into the lifestyle of endurance training. Important there is lifestyle. As many of you know, endurance training requires quite a sacrifice. And in order for you to get from hitting enter on the race entry to the start line, a lot needs to happen. The obvious is always the training, but there's a considerable space between the training and the start line. And that is what we try to dive into here on the Weekly Word Podcast. Beyond the training, how do you reach endurance potential? How do we navigate these training hours with our family and career? What is the mindset needed to persevere through some difficult training phases despite a career and busy family life? Helping athletes understand, navigate, embrace the endurance lifestyle and its benefits. That's what I'm here for. That's what we're here for. And for some, guide them through the transformation it can bring about. We all went pro in something other than this sport we endeavor, and here on the Weekly Word Podcast, we try to help you navigate that terrain. These endurance adventures are milestones, an incredible achievement, one that remains with us for the rest of our lives. One of the many reasons I love this coaching is because most of the athletes involved are celebrating one of the best, most meaningful days of their life not only unlocking endurance potential that they deep down knew inside they had, but also achieving something on the far edge of what they deemed possible. Since you are listening to this, the spark within you has been ignited. You are curious to find out what kind of endurance athlete you can be. Less about speed, more about how far can I go? What else can I achieve? And why not me? It's time to push beyond the boundaries of what we thought was possible and reach the endurance athlete potential we always knew deep down inside we had. Welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. This week we dive into a 50k race debrief, but we bounce back and forth between a race plan and a race debrief. And these are important components, again, to maximize our limited training time. Having a pre-race plan, thoughtful, intentional, strategic, tactical, as well as a post-race debrief where we capture 
capture and note all the ingredients and things that happened during the race, what went well, what didn't go well, and what we can easily fix, adjust, improve before the next event, race, etc. So much as we talk about trying to navigate that space between hitting enter and the actual start line comes into how we plan for it how we envision the day and our training also unfolding. Part of a race plan is also our training plan. It ties back into what we've talked about on many episodes, intention and clarity and purpose and back down from purpose, clarity, intention. When we enter into a training session with intention, just like a race, we have a plan, clarity, a path, a direction we're heading. That's the strategy. Our purpose is our deeper why, why we're doing this, why we're engaged in it. And we can also use that source of energy of our purpose and our deeper why to address our fears, our concerns, our anxiety, and our uncertainty of the event. That clarity, that path, that strategy is how we plan to go about our day, our training, or our event whether that's a 90-minute workout or a 10-hour Ironman or 10-hour run, whatever the event is. So with that clarity, it allows us to nail down, clarify how we want to go about achieving our desired outcome. How? And the intention is how we show up. It is how we plan to execute on the clarity. If done right, intention doesn't require a lot of willpower. We've already done that on the pre-work with the path, how we plan for this day to go. Keeping in mind, as we go through a race debrief and a race plan, purpose, clarity, and intention. Intention is how we want to show up on race day. We've done the work. We have a clear path. Now we just need to take that first step and get going successfully, but also tactically. The plan is a memory of the future. It's visualizing, but we also can't be too rigid on the plan as things need to be evaluated along the way, even along our clarity path during the event, during the race. Otherwise, plan execution creates blinders of the current reality we're in, hence the check-in with body and our reset at times. That body scan tells us a lot. It, we check in with our senses, what we're observing, what we're noticing, what we need to adjust to still execute on our strategy. We might need to change our tactics, but we can stay true to the strategy we originally wrote out. Now, the military is big on planning and walkthroughs. But it's not autopilot, it's prep, it's scenarios, it's being present to still execute the plan according to how the day is unfolding. And when the outside influences, the environment, the situation changes, being locked on a plan can ruin your day or put you in the hospital. A plan is a memory of the future. Think of it that way. As we dive into this episode of post-race debrief, and a lot of my interjecting into David on pre-race plan. Enjoy. Where to begin? We already have a race prep that you went through, um, and that was for a 50K. 
And so I think what we also might want to consider there is some bullet points on what to look for for a race plan, because this is something we never have really discussed on the podcast. And you brought this up last time with the 50K. Hey, just let's record my walkthrough. But what to, how to build a race plan and what details to put into it, even if it's just for yourself, is something I think we should address and bring up because, you know, a lot of people are racing again. And in general, creating a vision on paper of how you want your day to go allows your brain to think of the other things versus spending its energy, willpower, focus, and attention on some things that could have easily been documented, worked out in a bullet style list prior. And also you you take care of a lot of logistics and easy, low hanging fruit decisions prior to race day with a good race plan. Mm -hmm. And so those are things you don't want to forget as you're building your race plan so that and, and then similar to what we're doing today, where you're going to go through a race debrief with me, and I'm just going to give feedback. The key there is also understanding that what of this information will I look at next time I do my next race plan that I can pull from this and have a quick reminder, put myself back into that time post-race to do all the things that I forgot last time. A good race debrief captures the easy stuff that we remember from the race that you then go, okay, well, how could I forgot that? That was so easy. I just haven't raced in a while, or I always forget to do X, Y, Z, or the little things like on a wetsuit, are you able to reach your zipper properly if there's no wetsuit strippers, which in this world of post-COVID, there are no wetsuit strippers really. And so did you need to put an extra string with a little pin onto your wetsuit zipper strip in order to make it longer, in order to then have an easier way to reach it after your swim? Uh, because you were fumbling with it for like 30 seconds trying to get it and then pull it down. Little things like that. That's an example in a race debrief that you have that written down so that two weeks prior to your next big race, you have a couple of bullet points or things to take care of or to remember so that next time this will no longer be an issue. Whether that's nutrition, strategy, logistics, hydration, um, mindset, um, execution, fueling prior, meaning dinner prior, breakfast prior, all those little details so that you literally finish a debrief and have a, a to-do list or an action list or a reminder list on the end of it to say, for next time, these are the key observations and things I can easily improve, not regarding training, but regarding logistics or being better prepared. Throw into that the other aspect with a good race plan, also you're going mentally through that in your head. How you're sitting down to eat the night before, what that will be, what kind of environment that will be in, what your frame of mind will be in, how calm you are, how relaxed that is, because you set the conditions in your race plan so that they can just easily be executed. I want to eat my bowl of pasta with some bland chicken and some vegetables at 5 p.m. I'm going to be sitting in the condo, in the kitchen of my condo. Um, Put the AC on and gently and gradually uh, eat that meal. I'm not going to be rushed. I'm going to go through the last few details. I'm going to 
you know, review a file or whatever. And then after that, I'm going to do these three things and I'm going to go catch a movie on the TV or Netflix or even go to the movie theaters because that's great for just getting your mind off of something. And then I plan to be back home at 8.30. I'll have a little snack and hydrate. And then I see myself going to bed. I know I won't fall asleep right away, but I will be in bed, relaxing, uh, shutting my eyes, envisioning the next day, doing some intentions and some gratitude maybe, and then you know, go from there. That's sort of, you want to go into that minutia, into that detail. What I always compare it to, and you can relate to this, is ski racers. What I love about the, when you, when you see ski racers, either live or on TV, at the top, before they're and behind the staging area, they're all in their boots. I don't know if they're clipped into their skis. I doubt it. But they have their helmet on, their goggles on, the whole thing. And they are literally going through each turn of the course. They're swaying their body. They're moving their body through. They're envisioning how they're going to do these next two minutes, 212, 150, whatever it is. Flowing through the course, feeling the course, literally having the stimulus mentally prior and so that's hard for an endurance event when you're doing that for 10, 11, 14, 20, 30 hours. But you can go through the details. You can go through the start. You can go through the first half hour of your event because, you know, let's say for a 50K or a 100-mile or a long run, you know, how you're feeling after hour two versus six versus eight versus 10, like you don't need to envision all that. You're just running. But similar to ski racers, I want to go through every sensation over the first, in the days prior to the event so that I feel like nothing will be unfamiliar to me. And similarly, I will do this for Tahoe. You know, it's a 10 hour, 10 plus hour swim, but everything on how I envision scenes on the lake, scenes at the start, scenes at the finish, scenes the night before, scenes of wake up time and how that's all unfolding. And I say scenes because I can't do all 10 hours, but each one of those are a snapshot of how I envision that moment in time going. And from there, I build my race plan and my expectations and my vision of the day around it. I like that you brought in the ski racing portion. You nailed that, by the way. Don't you agree, though? I love that. It's, it, you know, that's the thing was with the Olympics. There's so many little things that are happening in the background. I wish they wouldn't just always focus on the U.S. athletes, is that you can pick up and learn and their routines and how their mindset is set or and how they're observing and how they're taking notes and how they're talking to their coaches and how they're, all those things are invaluable to shaping an overall better athlete. And any of us as master's athletes could easily apply all that input. Those that, that Just because they're doing it better, stronger, faster, higher, doesn't mean they're doing it smarter. That's the athlete's mindset again, right? We're capable of doing everything the same way, with the same approach, with the same methodology, with the same psychology. Now, can we dunk a basketball? Probably not, but can we? go through the same prep and mindset and, and lead into it? Yes. Yeah. And as you'll hear later in the episode about the debrief for the Shadow of the Giants 50K that we're shining a light on, the ski racing attitude of memorizing every single turn and counting gates if it's slalom, you know, your eight five threes 
that that kind of fanatical attention to detail really was valuable, even in in ultra, just memorizing um, not just the aid stations and how far apart they are, and having a you know three four three five three number sequence memorized of the distance between each aid station, but also memorizing the grade so that there were no surprises. You know exactly when the hill is going to end. And and knowing where the technical sections are, knowing where the straight and exposed sections are with Google Satellite, and knowing where the sections are that are going to be a a mess. And that stuff, I mean, as you'll hear in the debrief, that stuff gave me a really big advantage over other people in the race. And it was uh, was hilarious because they had all the same resources I did, but they're the ones asking me questions. And and this race was one where people go every year. Uh, there are people who've been going 10 years in a row. It's that kind of local race that people are really into. And people were asking me questions about where to go. And I was like, I've never been here before, but the answer is left. And yeah. it was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, the thing we've talked about on many podcast episodes, but also how I coached very early on in my triathlon career is control the controllables because the day is hard enough and there's already going to be no matter how well you're prepared, plenty of things that are outside of your control, whether other competitors, you know, little details that just can go wrong, flat tires, mechanical issues that just could not have been predicted or prepared for. So having everything else worked out, now you can go into the minutia as much as you want, whatever calms you and keeps your brain focused on the things that aren't in your control. So you have a clear mind and can problem solve as well as also conserve energy, especially in an endurance event. That's up to the athlete. Like would I use Google maps like you did and, 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 or Google satellite and go through the course like that for any trail run? Probably not. But, um, Again, whatever makes you more comfortable to put out the performance that you feel good about. Yeah. So how do you want to do this? We're going to flip the context here or the format here a little bit. And I'm going to allow David to go through his race debrief. And we've not discussed what I look for in a debrief or um, given him any type of format. And I will critique it (laughs) for those who know us well enough will remember my backbone critique um, for David. And we will have a similar format, but the purpose is more to clarify and give you all bullet points or actionable points in order to have an effective debrief of your own for any event. And also this applies to good simulation days as well, or key workouts prior to a race where where you sort of take some notes and go through what's important to you what you learned, what are some easy fixes, uh, actionable to-dos, and so forth. Great. And one difference between this debrief and ones that we like to receive from our athletes after they do big simulations or races or events Mm -hmm. is that I'm going to try to tell a story and paint a picture to enable you, people listening, to feel like you were kind of there, right? I don't just want to go through the minutia of, you know, I drank this many ounces at this interval and because, you know, it's kind of boring. Yeah, Yeah. please don't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And... Let's start at the beginning. 
Okay, so story time. This got funny before the race uh, even started the night before. So the race was going to be near Yosemite and I live in San Francisco. So, you know, call it a four or five hour drive. So decided to rent a place, a hotel, and wanted to have the hotel be far enough away that there was time to wake up on the drive up the mountain and into the race start parking lot. And so booked a place in Mariposa, hour away, a perfect amount of distance. <laughs> I decided I was going to stay in a cute little tent cabin, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's a wood framed single room. It was actually pretty nice, but it's a tent canvas instead of a hotel room because all the hotel rooms were either quite expensive or far away. And I just decided I wanted to try this. Well, small wrinkle, two things were going on. One, the local high school had their graduation on the exact same night, you know, with really loud music and kids making those high pitch high school noises that they do. And that went on pretty late. And then two, the tent cabin next to me had a romantic young couple uh, staying in it. And I was like, oh no. So I had earplugs in and I, I could still hear uh, more than I wanted to hear. And so didn't really sleep a lot. Uh, the night before this 50k, which just continues the streak. I've I don't think I've ever had a race where I've slept well the night before, and you know, <laughs> I was like this. Okay, I had it coming. So then, you know, got up super early and had pre-made oatmeal, had pre-made blueberries in the oatmeal, and um, had extra sweet potato. Had tons of food. Had my coffee. Got in the car and drove to the race. And, you know, it's lovely. You're going up these beautiful Yosemite-esque roads. And, okay, so, yeah, this gets to be a little bit TMI, but it's also, like, extremely important. <clears throat> a human being uh, needs to go to the bathroom in the morning before a race. This is just a thing that every racer kind of knows and does. And um, this was where the first problem emerged. I could not go to the bathroom. <laughs> and race is getting nearer and nearer. I can hear all the announcements on the microphone. And I'm like, okay, this is not going to happen. I am not going to be able to go to the bathroom before this race. Um, six hours of running, terrific. You know, aside from that, get in a quick warm up, get my bib on. And one thing that I did that I really was kind of proud of was I was dead last person crossing the starting line. And they don't do clock time, they do chip time. And they said this. So in the back of my head, uh, and this is the last time I would think about actually racing for you know three or four hours. If it came down to a sprint finish, then I would have sandbagged my start time so that I would win. And I have been in those sprint finishes before, and I just really don't like losing them. So that was kind of my dirty trick. It also gave me an extra minute and a half of time to do some hip circles and different warm up stuff I wanted to do. Get my shoes exactly the right tightness. So. Anyways, proverbial gun goes off, everyone starts, and because I'm starting literally dead last, I have absolutely no idea where I am in the race rankings, and I'm totally fine with that. I pass a large number of people in the first mile. The race is basically uphill on fire roads for a while, and eventually I settle in. I'm in with the group of people that I know I'm going to be running with for the first two hours and just start making friends. And, you know, everyone up there is super cool, as you would expect at an ultra. Uh, I was hanging out with this one guy named Jesus, who will come up later, and he had run 100Ks, 50Ks. This race is a 50K that we're running right now. I will interject that uh, the one thing I forgot in my packing 
was drum roll, da 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 da, spring energy gels. I um, showed up to the race <laughs> with no nutrition. And um, I realized this the night before. And so I took some extra Ziploc bags that fortunately I'd brought, and I was stuffing cooked sweet potato and oatmeal. Um, which I had extra into my bags and that went into my, you know, Solomon vest. And that was my backup. Uh, it ended up not being a problem. I got to the first aid station and just immediately grabbed a bunch of spring energies. Lo and behold, they had spring energy gel. And from the heavens, the clouds. It's amazing. This little spotlight was shining through the clouds onto my face, and I felt beautiful and powerful. And then a voice came from a burning bush, and it got awkward. So, yeah. and you, pr- you pranced down the road with exactly energy at an easy five minute per mile pace uphill. Yeah. So yeah, that that was one giant screw up. So let's dive into that. So there's your first true hiccup. Um, mm-hmm. Besides the bathroom thing, I mean the, the the bathroom thing. Let's just break that down um, for no better use of words right now. <laughs> yeah. is, it is what it is. I mean, you have other aid stations. You know, you can run to the next aid station where they'll hopefully have a porta potty. So there's one solution. Um, not mm-hmm. to stress about it. The main thing is not to stress about it. Um, the, a solution will present yeah. itself too. Yes, you could have waited a little bit. You're not looking to go when the gun goes off, even if you go five minutes late, like you said, chip time. So, um, and again, you know, when the body will react differently on a nervous stomach and uh, on expectations, uh, I'm always surprised, for example, that I can go uh, 10 hours, 11 hours, 12 hours through an Ironman day. Um, not that the Ironman takes me that long, but by the time between bathrooms, right? Like, a, let's mm-hmm. say I go 90 minutes prior and then an hour after the race, or maybe even longer. And I'm like, wait, I put so much junk in my body today. And a lot of the cliff bars and bars are just basically nuts. I mean, stuff like that should just be going right through me. But, you know, on a training day, there's no way I would have to stop or I would, you know, use a bathroom on race day. Don't need to. So keep that in mind. I mean, your body just knows what to do and reacts differently in given the circumstances and subconsciously knowing that we're conserving or whatever. So not something to be overlooked, but then also forgetting your nutrition. Um, Now you had done the prep obviously prior knowing that they had spring on the course. And Mm -hmm. so that's of course very helpful. So you just go, okay, big deal. I'll have to wait. You know, what was it? Four miles, five miles, three miles, whatever it was. Yeah. So that's fine. And then you threw in some extra Ziploc bags just in case. But overall, if your nutrition is derailed like that, yeah, you, what's best practice there? Do you back off the pace and sort of uh, go through what's offered on the course, given that that's not your usual nutrition? And when you see that you're actually absorbing it or feel pretty good, that you can then bring the energy levels and effort levels back up again, you know, that's that's a, that's a solution or you trust that you've had enough things. And this is why it's important to test and, and have different approaches with regards to nutrition. When you train, you want to go into the general store in some little town in the middle of nowhere where you rode your bike to or ran to and use what they, what you have to buy. It is important to know that your body can handle different things. You 
don't want to just be stuck on spring energy gel. Mm -hmm. You don't just want to be stuck on a certain type of bar or product because you will go longer or life circumstances will create a window or a time where all that goes out the window. You lose your nutrition on the, the bike. Your special needs bag is lost in an Ironman. And all of a sudden, now the rest of the backup for the race, you have to go off of course nutrition. And the old adage in triathlon especially, but also in ultra running was find out what's on the course and start training what's on the course. Now, most people did that because they wanted to go neutral on the course in order to just take in what the race offers, Gatorade and, you know, goo gels and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But others did it because they wanted to ensure that if something goes wrong, they can still use those products. Yeah. Speaking of the night before, I, I realized I was missing my food before I even got to my hotel. Mm -hmm. So did go into the local um, gas station to try to find something that would be good. And I was sitting there reading the backs of the labels of everything, Cliff Bars, Kind Bars, um, it doesn't matter what. And everything, uh, I know you do well with Cliff Bars, I don't. And, you know, the mm -hmm. canola oil and the seed oils and you know the stuff that keeps them preserved for a year and a half. I read the label of literally every product and just walked out with nothing and was like, I'll just, you know, I'll figure it out. <laughs> but yeah. there's nothing in that store I wanted to eat. Yeah. And, and as you expand the horizons of your racing, um, hopefully you'll get an opportunity to race in other countries where mm -hmm. your spring energy gel will not be available <laughs> when you're in South America or in Asia and so forth. So again, mm -hmm. you obviously will know prior to going there. And so, you know, once again, yeah. you'll train on something that you can find there, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah. yeah, your luggage gets lost and your Ziploc bag of 622 spring energy gels didn't make it to the race start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thought, and I learned this from you, is just because they say they're sponsored by spring doesn't mean they're going to have it when you get to the aid Correct. stations. It's Correct. the most valuable product on the aid station. It's the first thing that's going to disappear. So exactly. I was lucky. I was in the top 10 percentile of the race pretty much the entire time which meant I got first dibs at all the boxes, but I could tell they didn't have a lot. Yeah. And keep in mind too, this is what we used to struggle with in the earlier days of gels with, with goose and even power bars and stuff. The good flavors were gone early. <laughs> so then you're stuck with the, the ones, especially when they're warm on a table, whether it's in the sun in a triathlon uh, running, or if it's, um, you know, on a long ultra and that table has been in the sun for like 16 hours already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So our mutual friend athlete, Ed was doing the Silverton Alpine marathon, very high elevation. And, um, they gave him a goo gel that was flavored hops. And he's like, huh, beer flavored gel. And he had like one taste of it. And he says it was the most vile, horrific taste he'd ever had. And it took him a while to shake the flavor. And he kept the wrapper just to prove to people that it happened. <laughs> yeah. So. He told me about it in his race report. That's one of those where you never combined your, 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 Casual flavored vices. So funny. On the positives, 
I was running next to this woman and I don't know why this happens every time I go to a race, either to just shadow it or to actually race it. But I always end up running next to like one of the top three women. And sure enough, I'm running next to this woman and we're talking for a while and she's just super cool. And I'm like, wait, are you like, are you fast? Do you podium at stuff? And she goes, yeah, I got second at American river 50. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm running too fast. So, you know, so we hung out for probably two or three hours what defines running too fast there was a technical section approaching the halfway turnaround point um and the halfway turnaround point which we'll get to in a sec was nelder grove that was like the main event that's where all the beautiful three thousand year old mega trees the sequoias are located and you know i i do very well in technical sections i don't do well in runnable sections and and we were just ripping through this one section it was downed trees everywhere and you're hopping over them and climbing over them and it was severely overgrown so your footwork has to be excellent so you're not tripping over roots which tripped a lot of people and we were just having a great time but when you get all excited and happy like that you just run a little too fast so i was probably clocking a minute per mile faster than i wanted to be through this six mile section of devastated trail and was it effort level or was it you're looking at pace? Uh, no, it was effort level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I was jamming. It was not appropriate for a 50K for the first third in the first half. So, yeah. But that was, it wasn't, you know, for the first 13 miles. It was for like four miles where it was just, and it was at a perfect little downhill. So you could really open up the stride. And it was, like, would I, would I slow down? If I could do that section again, would I do it differently? Yeah, I'd go a little slower. And that's about the only thing I'd change. It was fun. So as we're going out um, to the halfway turnaround point, we pass all the early start racers. And this was a cool thing that I, I don't know why I don't see this more often, but a bunch of racers started one hour earlier. And this gives them more room on cutoff and uh, more chance of getting to aid stations while people are still there. And so it was really cool to see all these people who had started early and I would recommend that to anyone who's not going to be running super fast. How was it passing those people? It was weird because they would hear us coming and they were just stopped on the side of the trail. Uh, they weren't even. Okay. So they did move to the side of the trail. They did. Yeah. I often find that you're coming through and you're, you know, not yelling, but you're letting them know you're coming through and trail and coming through. Mm Mm-hmm. So sometimes that gets, um, annoying is the wrong word, but it's just uh, fatiguing to constantly be like trail, coming through trail, heads up, coming through on your left, on your right, jumping over you. It does get old. It does get old. You know, sometimes I just passive aggressively kick the dirt really hard and make a sound and that way they can hear without me having to talk. But in this particular case, this race was mostly fire road. So there okay. was well, no, plenty of room. Yeah. No. Yeah. And plus, you know how if you're nimble, you can just hop around people. And I, I just do that a lot. I know it's not the most friendly <laughs> thing to do, but you're you're not nimble, David. You should read Ed's report on how I ran with him in Albuquerque. Well, I'm when nimble you're as hell. <laughs> you're nimble as hell for your size, but yeah, you're that's not nimble. <laughs> okay, fine. But but I'm still nimble compared to like the average trail runner. <laughs> the average 220 pound 
<laughs> six four. Uh, yeah, I guess I also have that insurance policy that if I hit somebody, I win, but <laughs> it doesn't happen. So, so you might think you're nimble. It's just everybody jumps out of your way. <laughs> that's you're not entirely wrong. <laughs> ah, he's coming uh, at me. Do they uh, sometimes huddle and sh- sh- like cower into cower a cower in ball? a little fetal position ball? So what does happen is, and this is a total tangent, but I run in the Presidio a lot in San Francisco. It's just this big rolling hills park in the middle of a city. And I'll run at dusk all the time. It's just my favorite time to run. I don't know why. And um, there's usually not too many people out, but those who are out, they're not expecting anybody. And then sometimes they're on headphones and I'll be trying to make a lot of noise behind them. They won't hear me. And I'll come up on the side of them and people do the loudest gasps and expletives you've ever heard. Like, I thought I was going to die for a millisecond because this monster of a man is just flew up behind me and I didn't hear him coming. And that happens a lot, which is really a warning to everyone. Like, have some situational awareness. Even if you think you're alone, you're not necessarily alone. You are never alone. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I do that. with. It happens with my dog a lot when I go running with her she'll just be on the single track and running ahead and she'll just cut through people real quickly. And they think it's like, they're just startled because not mm-hmm. that they think it's like some wild animal. They're just startled that some animal just ran between them. And so you always same thing. You see the, the air buds in or whatever it is and yeah. they just sort of jump a step. <laughs> yeah. They have a, like a mini heart attack yeah. and, and I feel bad about it when it's a woman because there's, you know, a big movement right now, especially in the Presidio. Is yeah, yeah, being harassed by men and not feeling safe, and there's just this big thing. But yeah, when it's a woman, I'm like, crap. What do I do? Do I like try to throw some gravel ahead so she can see there's someone behind her? Like, what? Do I, I literally don't know. Then the newspaper article the next day says, "Man throws rock at woman." Yeah, that, <laughs> and that's the end of my career. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. So on the topic, so I'm, I'm running with this woman and we're talking about everything about racing. And she had something that I think was worth mentioning. Uh, I know that you've, you don't think getting through aid stations super quick is necessarily the biggest priority. I will mention why I do think that mattered in this race. We would roll into an aid station at the same time. And she had one of those big water bottles mounted between her shoulder blades and she would just pull it out. They would dump water into it and she'd start running while she's screwing on the lid and she's gone. And her aid station stops for 10 seconds. Mine were closer to 60 seconds because I've got my two Solomon soft flasks and I got to get them out of the vest and stick them back in the vest. And then I had to catch up with her and I did this three times. And then I realized like, oh, this is, this is smart. She's doing something very smart. So take that for what you will. Yeah, she's also looking to place. And um, again, that's an intentions Mm -hmm. question. And once again, your race prep question, if you're looking to improve um, or get a placing and you need those minutes, you know, let's say how many aid stations were there in this 50K? Uh, I don't remember now because it's been a while, but I want to say six. So six times one minute, right? That'll add up. Oh, hugely. Yeah. We're going to talk about what six minutes was by the end of this race. So going into Nelder Grove, it's a, I don't know if it's a national monument or something, but it, it's super special. It's one of the only places where these 3000 year old mega trees live. So it's also one of the only truly technical sections of the place. Um, it wasn't an overgrown fire road with fallen trees. It was a single track with tons of fallen trees 
and it was rocky and running through half of it was challenging. You would be pretty much reduced to hiking through the other half. And, you know, so everyone's getting excited because now we get to see these mega trees and these trees are as big around as a small house. They are unspeakably huge. There's one small problem. Uh, someone cut down all of them. And so you run by the world's largest tree stump. It's the size of a small house. And then you go, huh, that's, that's not good. And then you run by another one and another one. And then you realize, oh no, this is not a forest. This is a graveyard. And then I got really sad. And then fortunately, a few of these mega trees, they literally look like someone just pumped a tree full of steroids. They're so big. And a few of them hadn't been cut down, but most of them had, and it was just super weird. So I'm in the middle of Nelder Grove and I'm like, okay, finally there's tree cover. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I have my little outdoor bathroom kit, you know, whatever. And so I, I walk off the trail and I go behind a tree and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to go to the bathroom and it does not work. Nothing happens. And then I'm like, okay, I'm just so emotionally defeated at this point um, from this whole bathroom ordeal. I'm just going to go back onto the trail. My stomach is up, is hurting because, you know, just uh, too much details, but also this is a thing that happens to people in races quite commonly um, sometimes. And, um, and at this point, you know, I was off the trail for like a couple minutes, a bunch of people passed me. I get back on the trail, more people pass me. The aforementioned Jesus goes, Hey David, are you okay? And I'm like, just, I'm good, dude. Um, and then, um, I can feel my knee starting to tighten up because I had IT band issues going into this race because I was an idiot and stopped doing banded crab walks, banded monster walks, sideline leg raises. I stopped training my glute meds specifically, which is something I have all my athletes do. And I was just like, wow, my glute meds are so strong from working on them. I guess I don't need to train them like an idiot. And so I did that. So I'm dealing with knee pain. I popped some ibuprofen. Um, and this low period lasts for about 10 minutes. I get over it. I get out of the grove and then I start racing again and repass everybody that had passed me, which took, you know, an hour. And now we're past the halfway point and we are going now in a, a long, gradual uphill section, just passing more new people I haven't seen before. I have no clue what place I'm in. I'm not asking anyone what place I'm in. I don't care. I'm just running my race. And now is probably a good time to talk about nutrition and well, hydration. So, let me go back to the uh, sequoia trees. Were they burnt down? No, no. The um, what had happened was a fire did come through several years ago and wipe out a large portion of the forest. And so it was primarily very young trees, you know, six, ten inches in diameter. But the twenty foot wide bases of stumps. And the stumps are so tall, they're like two stories tall. But no, they hadn't been killed by fire. They had been killed by loggers who came through, I'm told, my sister did some quick research, so this is not correct, but it's close. Uh, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, um, loggers first came through and were like, oh, hell yeah, we're cutting these things down. These things are amazing. And that that's allegedly what happened to the big ones. Gotcha. What did happen, and this was also depressing, is if you heard about these super fires that scorch the earth, they don't revitalize the soil as fires are supposed to, but we've stopped yeah. the forest from burning for such long durations that now the fires come through and sterilize the earth. I ran through a large section of the, of the race that was through one of those scorched earth places, and the forest isn't coming back. Three years later, I've never seen anything like it. It was... It was sad. 
So moral of the story, uh, maybe one day California will start letting fires burn areas that have been burning every seven years for the last 10,000 years since the ice age ended. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a fire expert, but anyways, you know, there is a connection to the environment when you're out in these places for that long, you know, for sure. <laughs> a lot of time to think. For sure. So, um, nutrition, hydration. Um, we talked during the race plan prep episode about what I was going to do with water and timers. And honestly, I didn't do any of it. I had between one and two bottles of water. These are 500 milliliter soft flasks um, between aid stations. I had nothing at aid stations, just fill them up and go. And it worked great. Felt out awesome. What do you think that averaged per hour? It was uh, one and a half bottles average per hour, 750 milliliters average. Yeah. That's that. And then nutrition was, I thought this went really well, actually. It was um, at the halfway point, I had that bag of sweet potato, my backup plan. And I was just like sad. And I know that eating sweet potato is the most delicious thing in the middle of an ultra or training day. So squeezed down a bunch of that, threw away all the extra food I had because it was just dead weight at this point. I wasn't going to use um, the oatmeal and the sweet potato. Then I just had a spring like whenever my stomach said, Hey, you're good. Um, you should do another as where if I had had more spring, I would have felt sick. And if I had less spring, then I would have been wasting potential to consume calories. So that ended up being every 30 to 40 minutes. And I would just have 110 calorie shot and literally no problems with nutrition. It was, that was great. And then you know, as things progressed later in the race, I was letting my hair down a little bit and proverbially speaking, how to Coca-Cola at the last aid station, just because that's a fun way to like end a race. And there's really no consequences <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mister, I didn't touch anything at the gas station, but I'll throw down a Coke. Yeah, because I'm at mile 27 and I just need to get to mile 33 and call it a day. So it's very different, right? I wouldn't do a Coke before that. But at that point, I knew my stomach was A plus and I could pretty much throw in anything and be fine. How long did the event take you? Uh, five hours and 50 minutes. And you maintained your nutrition strategy. How long of that? The entire time. No, I mean, did you stop at 530? Cause you know, you only had 20 minutes left. Did you start at, at oh. 45 minutes in? Cause you had breakfast. Like you, that's what I mean. Your nutrition um, strategy was effectively five hours of the 550. Okay. That's a good question. So the last aid station, now I'm not remembering as well, but at the time I, I knew these numbers hard. Um, I had, you know, three miles, five miles, something like that to go from the last aid station. That's when I stopped with a spring and I hammered a Coke and just went into like war mode. And, um, we should, well, that's yeah. where you cue the cowering runners in a fetal position on the side of yeah, the exactly. <laughs> I'm just I have a bugle and a drum, and uh, it's one of those big bassy drums. And did you take your shirt off and just wrap it around your arm and just like like some Samoan drummer coming? I actually do that a lot. Just I didn't do it in this race. Um, I did that with Ed in um, Albuquerque, and I'm still like strawberry. I'm a uh, lobster red from the sun <laughs> at seven thousand feet, apparently. It, it gets through the atmosphere. Um, so, but um, so getting to that. So, there were some really interesting things that happened during this race. On the way back, they had to divert for COVID reasons. They couldn't do things the way they always do. 
And so they diverted the race and they, I knew this was going to happen. It went into a horse trail. There was a second water crossing. The first one was at, I don't know, mile seven, whatever. There was a camera guy there. It was very cute. I paid him his absorbent amount of money for the photos. Thank you, camera guy. And then we get to the second water crossing and then boom, you're onto a sandy, dusty horse trail, which is just a great combination with wet shoes. And it was a strong uphill hike. I don't think it was very runnable unless you're Walmsley or somebody. And there's no airflow in there. And so it started getting uncomfortably hot and it was marked well enough, but I was on my GPS, GPX map constantly checking because there were a lot of places where you could get lost. And a lot of people did get lost. And a lot of people were pissed because... You know, one guy admitted, like, I had my head down, I missed a ribbon, I missed a turn, and that was his race. But in that horse trail section, that's when I started passing a lot of people. I think I passed like four or five people. So I get to the top of this horse trail section, it cuts through the woods, like not even on trail anymore. And there's just, that's how they were band-aiding this race course due to COVID restrictions. And I knew where to go because I had studied the map. And so I, I made the correct turn. And it took us onto a spur and out and back just to get to an aid station. And this is the first time I'm really able to see people who are ahead of me. And I'm able to make a list of, okay, these are the people I want to catch. And you know, now we're in race mode, right? We're, we're in the high 20s of mileage and it's a 33 mile race. And so, you know, the girl I had been running with, she's ahead of me at this point and she's on her way to claim second place for women and some pretty high place overall. And like, I think she got like fourth or fifth overall or whatever it was. And, um, she's like, David, which way do I go? And I'm like, Oh God. Okay. Go straight. Um, past that thing. And I'm like giving directions to people. It's completely absurd. And she wasn't the only one. Other people, as I'm going down this spur, they're coming up the hill and they're like, which way do I go? I'm like that way. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to help. Like, Don't worry. You're in the lead. What are you doing? You have a responsibility to know where you're going. So no, they don't. No, and that's an interesting thing, and, and that's a you know that's the assumptions. That we, but we see it all the time in trail mm-hmm. running. I mean, I would say almost more than half, maybe half or more, do not know where they're going, and they're relying so much on the race directors and the volunteers and the ribbons and telling them where to go mm-hmm. that it is a constant theme of ultra running that some of the lead athletes get lost or took a wrong turn. It's just part of the, the nature of ultra running, but, um, yeah, spending the time and going over the course like that, as well as the typical familiarity with past courses and then things being changed due to fire, due to restrictions, permits, or due to COVID and so forth that, yeah, this is quite, a common occurrence. And so therefore you're saying you have a responsibility. (laughs) I don't think they're thinking like that. Fair. Yeah. Walmsley has an entire YouTube documentary hour long about how he missed one turn at Western States. And uh, and that's his legend. So although now he's won so many times, I think people are starting to kind of brush that one off. So yeah. So I get to the bottom of this hill and now this is like a real hill. It's like like this, an actual hill, like the front runners, I talked to them and none of them were running it. And it was, it was a hike hill. And so in my head, I'm like, okay, refill bottles at the bottom. And then if I can somehow run this hill, like one would running up Mount Tam, you know, our local 2,500 foot, pretty steep. If you go straight up at peak, it was kind of like that. 
And so I tried my hardest to run and it didn't go well. You know, I was able to hold on to it about half the time, had to walk the other half. And at which point I realized, okay, I'm not passing anybody else today. It's over. And that was the end of that. Got to the top of that hill, ran down the other side into the finish. And at that point, I just went into singing songs to myself mode, as you're well aware, something I do. And it was a good way to end the day and got in. Um, turns out I got, I think it was 12th place overall. And one of the guys I had seen, this is a total aside, one of the guys I saw going up the hill as I was coming down on that spur, I looked at him and was like, oh, you're built like a rugby player. And so he's the first person I run up to in the Finnish corral. And sure enough, he's like, yep, I uh, trained in New Zealand and played at an extraordinarily high level. And I'm like, yep, okay, that's easy to spot. And he beat me and it was his first ultra ever. And knowing rugby players like I do, they just sometimes they just have such a genetic advantage. I looked at his Strava after and he hardly trains at all. He's just a genetic freak. So that means I have some work to do. I'm getting beat by people who don't run. Uh, that's not ideal. And uh, he got ninth and he got ninth by as much time as it took me to walk into the woods and back, which is to say that this bathroom thing cost me top 10 again, not the first time. So extra precautions will be made to <laughs> these things <laughs> at the next race. And that was my day. So, uh, maybe also what you eat, you know, the night before or the day before ties into that could be yeah. just something I would add to the checklist. Yeah. Then, how can um, it? Yeah. Well, and also I would, uh, think about, well, is that worth it to me to spend a little bit extra money to be closer to the race in order to use the bathroom later in the morning slash, you know, up until, you know, 15 minutes before race start or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, it might not always be as remote as what you're talking about, but you know what I'm saying. So something Absolutely. to explore and, and just a question to ask yourself. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you, you know, in your mind and you can always send them a note that you would have beaten him had it not been for. <laughs> oh, it gets better. Um, he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I do some ultra stuff. And he's like, oh, cool. Like we should go run together. Cause we both live in San Francisco. And so now I've got like a buddy again, <laughs> making a lot of buddies lately. <laughs> So, yeah, he's a cool guy. You just got to so respect guys that talent. Together can scare people in the Presidio. Yeah, seriously. It's just this two-man wrecking crew rolling down Great Highway or whatever. So, <laughs> Gotcha. So, um, what are your – so, we already identified a couple of actionable points. You know, one, dealing with this porta potty question once and for mm -hmm. all so that that doesn't yeah. come up. And that might require also some morning simulations and so forth uh, mm -hmm. and, and eating race dinner and then going for a 30 mile training run, or at least not allowing yourself, um, or figuring out the timing, um, before you start running as well as, you know, how you're going to deal with that. Yeah. And then the other actionable with, um, you know, forgetting your springs and what the alternatives are in order to have some sort of backup plan, not even a plan, but a confidence or a calming knowledge to know that there's a few products that you'll be fine with. So yeah. what else? What else? Something that I think is important to touch on before we circle back to um, more things to implement it would be that at the finish line, the amount of complaining, you and I talked about this immediately after the race because it was kind of shocked by it. 
and you're like, oh yeah, this is normal. But everybody, not everybody, but like 80% of people were just complaining loudly, tastelessly, and that the course was poorly marked and the course was not poorly marked, that people were getting lost. Um, people were getting lost with the published map that was accurate. They weren't following it. That's their own fault. One, one front runner woman who looked shockingly like Amelia Boone got lost and was just making a big mess. And I literally went up to the head of the aid stations and just like had a little chat with him. And you know, he was in good spirits. His family was there. And I was like, like, just ignore everything these people are saying. Like, they're wrong. Like, you did a great job. The aid stations were well run, well stocked. Everyone was very polite. And he's like, thanks, man. And um, one guy said, you know, that line I told you, which is, I've done 100 milers harder than this race. And you're like, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody's emotions post an event that didn't go their way or didn't meet their expectations. Or again, once how they envisioned it unfolding in their mind are always going to have the blame game versus sort of taking a deeper look at yourself. And also, oftentimes that takes a little bit, right? Like, mm -hmm. all right, let's see. Is the UPS guy going to get eaten today? Yeah, I hear that. Uh, Miles is uh, <laughs> saying threats. <laughs> like, come on up the stairs. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I've got <laughs> nothing to live for. I'm 12. <laughs> Bring the heat, boy. <laughs> so, I live yeah, through but, war, um, the Iraq war. <laughs> <laughs> the 48-hour conflict. In, no. um, yeah. So, you know, and so there's, a, there's some raw emotions going on there. And, and of course, there's, you know, the validation going on back and forth where others go, yeah, I feel the same way. So that just feeds itself and it creates this sort of you know, pandemonium there. But mm -hmm. you know, there's not an Iron Man, like I told you, that goes by where somebody doesn't say, man, it was so much windier, so much hotter than last year or than it's ever been. And I've done this race five times. Like you can never take those things too seriously. But like you said, the, the people trying to put on an event and organize it, it's brutal hearing that. But the other end of it is, you know, in the triathlon world and a lot of ultra running events, it sells out within 10 minutes, two weeks later. So you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> their, their complaints were clearly not um, valid or uh, reasonable for them not to right away sign up again. So yeah. Yeah. So other areas of improvement. One, I told you during the, the planning uh, discussion that I was going to bring my phone and I brought AirPods as well. Didn't need or use or want them the entire time. And they were just dead weight. And it was an extra item of, you know, I was wearing a belt to hold all this junk and didn't need it. And so I have a race coming up in two days, the Skyline 50K, and I will not be bringing a phone or AirPods and I will save some weight. And that would be much appreciated. Another improvement that has become pretty popular, but I was kind of late on the bandwagon is, you know, historically ultras are all about vests, hydration vests, unless you're a front runner, in which case you're, you're doing handhelds. And that's kind of just how things have always been. And I was hanging out at San Francisco Running Company, which is the local Marin County mecca of all things trail running. And those guys actually know what they're doing and they stock all the cool shoes for trail running that no one else does. And the guy's like, have you tried a belt? And I'm like, man, no one runs with belts. And then there's like two elite guys and they're like, oh no, we run with belts. And I'm like, wait, what? And so they pull out the naked belt, 
which is mesh that goes around the entire circumference of your waist. And it holds two soft flasks, one cell phone, all your nutrition and your keys. And it has loops for pulls and your jacket. And that exposes your entire torso to just be a bigger panel for cooling and not have to wear a vest. And I've been training with it a lot. And Ed also has it and loves it. And this thing is fantastic. So that I'm really looking forward to getting rid of the Solomon S lab vest that ruined yet another shirt by bouncing up and down and ruining the chest where it rubbed. And that's going to be really cool. Can't wait for that. Cool. Good. And then, so going into this event in 48 hours, Mm -hmm. what's the immediate sort of, oh yeah, I know I'm doing these two or three things different. So aside from showing up with nutrition and I got a bunch of practice with bottles, Skyline 50K is a pretty well-known race in um, Northern California area. And I know some people who are going to go there who are just unbelievably fast. So I don't think I'm getting a top 10. I think this is just me going out and having a fun run day. So you're going to take your time in the porta potty? um, I am going to drink more caffeine. That is for sure. Um, I, yeah, it's a wonder drug on race day. And that was the problem with me bringing my own coffee. It was, it was this light David's trying to get off of his caffeine addiction mix. And I really needed something more powerful for race day, especially after having slept three hours. And yeah, that, that should take care of the, the porta potty action that is necessary. And then, yeah, I really hope anyone I'm about to go on a date with doesn't uh, listen to this episode. Yeah, there was one other thing I'm trying to think of. Oh, to not get excited when I'm on a really fun running section and not go too fast. So save the energy. Um, I know your entire shtick is go out slow, hammer the end fast. Yeah, but I wouldn't I wouldn't overestimate that because um, that's if you're sort of newer to it mm-hmm. um, and you know yourself after plenty of races well enough. For example, I would never race an Ironman like that anymore. Oh, yeah. No. Absolutely. But um, also for Skyline, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty runnable course, uh, especially yeah. the back half. <laughs> so you don't want to save too much because you're going to have a lot of tailwind and downhill on the on the back half, which will actually suit your strengths um, dramatically. So I would not overthink that. And again, throwing caution to the wind and learning where the threshold is. And, you know, that's your rugby player. Um, did he have a fear of blowing up? probably a lot less than you did. And therefore he just plowed right through getting in touch with the, the other version of his athlete self, which is like, oh, this don't hurt. I've yeah. Been, I've hurt, I've hurt way more than this. <laughs> that's true. And so therefore, yeah. but that, but again, that's something to keep in mind. These are all smaller races. They're not your A races. And these are the things where we do throw caution to the wind and we do learn where the thresholds are. And we do understand how much more we can break through and what we can tolerate and and make the mistakes and recover from. I mean, just alone making mistakes and learning how to recover from them or going way above threshold too long and then being able to say, yeah, but it took me only about 10, 15 minutes, but then I recovered just fine and felt great the the last 10. Mm-hmm. All those things are details that you don't want to um, pass on and not know what's out there. Because as we've said many times on this 
podcast is in order to find out what your potential is, you have to make those mistakes in order to then clarify your strategy and continue to hone those skills so that you can optimize what works best for you. You have to know all those options in order to find out that strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Looking at the debrief, let's see, we covered water loosely, we covered nutrition, we covered effort, we covered routing, we covered clothing to a certain extent, and logistics surrounding the race, both before and after. Be nice to people, say make friends. And and weather was no factor in this particular day. It was just California. Mm-hmm. So uh, other things of note, elevation. And this was, I can't remember, it was like 5,000 feet or something like that. And I live at sea level. So it was a gain. Uh, it turned out to be no factor. And that was something we didn't know going into this. So it was a fun learning. And uh, wear sunscreen. <laughs> That's a big yeah. one. Did you go over mindset? Mindset is never a problem. Okay. Yeah. Mindset was a problem. Who am I kidding? I. I had 10 minutes during the race in the Grove after the whole bathroom thing where I feel like, you know, I have a rock in my stomach where um, I just am mentally depressed. And that was where I gave away top 10. And also that was where the race beat me for a little while. And I was being a baby and, and I got over it quickly, thank God. But I think the lesson there was if you feel awful, just keep going. And I assume that applies to, to everybody. If you feel awful, just keep going. Well, again, it's an endurance event and there's going to be peaks and valleys. Your peak was running with that front female and feeling good and like um, catching the awareness on that also means you need to catch the awareness on when you're not feeling good. So you did the one end, but you can't not do the other end in order to stay sort of more in that space of equanimity, you know, where you can just sort of evaluate the emotions that you're having and making sure that they're coming from the proper place versus feelings that are just arising. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. Be the watcher. and, And and to be the watcher, but also you will have that in every race, whether it's 30 seconds or 30 minutes. And so it's important to evaluate what, where is this coming from? Is this a valid emotion feeling or is this low energy? Is this calories? Is this, you know, questioning myself because of a, another reason? And once you sort of go through a mental checklist like that, and maybe you do create a mental checklist and, and, and train with that of saying, all right, where is this coming from? Why is it coming from? Could it be food or hydration? Um, could it be a past experience? What's the story I'm telling myself? Those, you know, the, the typical questions, <laughs> as I say, this typical, um, and then having that filtration system within the mind so that then you can take it from a different not only perspective, but you've also delayed long enough by asking those questions now to come up with a more objective strategy. Yeah. You said something in there that, you know, maybe it's nutrition. Um, Actually, I housed a half a bag of sweet potato, which is a huge amount of calories. And I did that in the Grove and then felt better. (laughs) If one does not believe in coincidences, then it's possible that treating that low moment with more food was perhaps the best thing I could have done. Yeah. Well, we all seen the commercial to have a Snickers bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
And the important thing is um, that it just shows you how quickly a little bit of sugar in, in your system and glycogen can quickly, boom, perk you up and give you that immediate hit. Yeah. So, but also, again, being aware and observing that and doing the quick math or just saying, well, how long has it been? And, you know, you don't want to overdo it. Again, you want to, it's a delicate um, range you stay in. You never get too high on emotion. You never get too low on emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's why you oftentimes see in these, especially with the front end of the race, these elite performers who, you know, they look so stoic throughout the event. And then there's this big release when they're done because now they allow themselves to step out of the boundaries they've prepared themselves for in order to keep the objective decision-making going. And then they allow themselves the release of it's done. And I met the expectations I set myself where I achieved the outcome I was looking for. And then the high comes. Or the low. I mean, when it's disappointing too, the low comes. So, but you would never know it as they're going through the event. That's, that's a good uh, thing to aim for. That's a good life yes. goal. Well, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you don't want to be too, uh, uh, limited in the ranges either, because, you know, the texture of life is actually in those upper and lower ranges. And so, yeah, you know, twos you and nines, as you say. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, like um, all right. Well, we'll look into Skyline 50K on how you're doing. Um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. You know, one thing I haven't had all year is a good training block. So we'll see. Well, don't let that be your excuse. It's it's not been yet. I mean, I mean while I'm sure I could have been a lot faster at Shadow of the Giants, like, you know, I felt pretty good showing up to that considering I didn't have any semblance of a training block for it. I just ran uh, leading up to it. Yeah. And, and in all this, you just want to get a few under your belt in order to also crystallize for you what kind of training block you wouldn't want to put together. You yeah, have a lot with these two 50Ks, you'll have enough data inputs along with your just technical knowledge to start mm -hmm. thinking about, look, okay, what is the training plan for me? Yeah. And what do I want to integrate? What do I want to test out? What do I think I'm missing? What do I want to add? What do I want to do more of? And from that, eventually, and this is also why whether self-coached or coach athletes over the years, it's a three, four year process because exactly that is continuously being honed in order to maximize the outcomes based off the training time we have using some sort of basic stock type of training plan or sort of intuitive training plan, or even, um, you know, out of a book or technical training plan, how that truly affects the athlete individually and what they absorb and what they don't absorb in their past history and what's effective. That's the art and mm -hmm. that's the skill. And you have your own self to apply that, um, that to the canvas. Yeah. That's super interesting. And obviously that's, that's what we do all day. And it's, you know, sometimes I almost feel like I know some of our athletes better than I know myself. Like, you know, we've got one guy on a super low intensity, high mileage plan and another person on a heavy rucking plan and another person on a just ride your damn bike as long as you can plan because you don't do ride your bike enough. And, um, well, those are oversimplifications to say the least, but, um, it speaks to the customization to each person. And I guess to your point, this will become evident. Yeah. But the other thing that you want to keep in mind is, 
And this is beneficial for anybody listening and trying to sort of formulate their own training plan. The challenge becomes that the more you know, the more difficult it is to make your training plan, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because True. A, there's you have all these inputs and you don't know which one to factor into your own individual addition to the base mileage that you need anyway. And then, you know, there's the latest, greatest trend. Then you see here or there that what other athletes are doing and you go, huh, I wonder how that would work for me. And, or you're also programming for other athletes and you're putting together some customized workouts and you go, man, that'd be fun to do myself. Um, So all that is constantly swirling around in the mind so that too much information becomes a crappy training plan <laughs> because yeah. there's too much there's too many concepts you're trying to um, um, capture and then it's too complex uh, versus um, you know just sometimes simply getting the work done even if it's very simple boring repetitive work and that's why I'm a big proponent of the basic week that just gets repeated many weeks in a row because it's in the details of the basic week repetitive workouts. Every Tuesday you do this, every Wednesday you do this, every Thursday you do this. It's in the details that you're learning, growing, becoming better, stronger, faster, smarter. Indeed. Because you you learn this awareness um, about yourself and you can start picking up the signals because the repetition allows the external factors to become more quiet and your own internal signals become um, louder and you can make the adjustments from there. Yeah, I like that a lot. And and to clarify for anyone listening who might misinterpret that, um, while the structure looks identical, every Tuesday is a track workout, every Thursday is a medium distance, every Saturday is a long run, um, that does not mean you repeat the weeks. You make changes to have a novel stimulus so that every Tuesday is a different track workout. But no, 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 that's not really necessary. You don't need to change the stimulus because the ch- stimulus will change itself already because we have enough external factors. We don't live in a vacuum. And most people do. I mean, it's pretty hard to find somebody that has a uh, couch time all day and can create the same exact environment and lead in. But also keep in mind, there's, there's the other levers that we play with. We play with volume and resistance. Mm-hmm. And the, the key there is just because the workout is exactly the same, you can change the resistance, watts, you know, pace, um, speed, or you can change the volume. You can make it longer and shorter. Same exact workout, still zone two, boring aerobic day, run for an hour, but Mm -hmm. run for an hour at this pace or run for an hour at this heart rate or run for an hour and a half, but at this slower heart rate. So pulling the levers, but the workout, the basic week stays the same. So there's so many ways to do this and it's sort of, that's what keeps it fun and individual for everybody. But again, your body also recognizing patterns allows it to then focus on other things. I don't need to use the mental energy to get to the track and figure out what workout I'm doing and how I'm doing it and where I can get water and where the bathroom is. I can just go to the track now because I know Tuesdays is at the track and I have it all dialed so I can instead focus on those 10 400s with limited rest and work on form and cadence and footwork and posture and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's something, although it's 10, 400, six weeks in a row, it still will change enough. So temperatures based off of the volume on the weekends that led into that Tuesday workout. And so I'm now a little bit more tired. I haven't had a recovery week in three weeks. So how do I do on tired legs? And so 
as we've talked about plenty on this podcast, there's so many ways to skin this cat of fitness. So it's nice to hear that we were in fact saying the same thing just with completely different words. Yep. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for this, Chris. All right. Well, um, good luck this weekend. Have a good race. Thank you. No, uh, I would highly recommend throwing caution to the wind. I'm so glad it's recorded that you said that. I'm going to save that as my ringtone because, you know, you've been telling me to not throw caution to the wind pretty much every day since we started. Well, so. but that's the thing is a 50K is not something that you have to overthink. A 100K with regards to backbone, it's a completely different animal. And that's also why I asked you about the nutrition time, because what happens in the first five hours is different what happens in the next five hours. And so it's a big component to keep in mind that uh, uh, nutrition plans go well for five, six, seven. Uh, yeah, right on the seven hour range. And, and I've talked ad nauseum about how what you do in those first hours will affect seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and beyond. Um, and so it's important that it works and that you felt good. But I'm just, there's a delicate threshold there that as of five, six hours, the decisions become a lot more paramount onto future hours ahead and where things can go off the rails dramatically that you want to stay focused, keep your eye on the ball mm -hmm. um, that entire time, because especially two to five is where you're investing what your outcomes will be seven to 12. Do you recommend a 40 mile training run to really shake that out? Yeah. Yeah. But again, you have to build up the volume to be able to absorb and properly recover from a 40 mile training run. Yes. You know, the biggest, the longest training run I ever did, which had me feeling great for whatever, uh, Rocky Raccoon was 42 miles. And, you know, I needed that. I needed to go in the hole, but that's exactly the same thing for the swim now, you know, going a little bit over halfway and then getting a little bit of a, uh, not a wake up call, but like, dude, you need to sort some last things out here these last 10 days, 12 days. So that's important. But again, you can't just in your first season doing a 42 miler. Now you might be different because you have the backbone um, day in you. So you have a lot of miles there already. And then you've stayed, actually, you haven't stayed with it. <laughs> no, I have not stayed with it. Uh, um, I'm a uh, short distance so, guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, but that's the thing is 50 K's is still within reason, mm -hmm. um, especially skyline. Um, that because your uh, the Sequoia run is long. That was a long 50 K by two miles. Yeah. That makes a big difference. I mean, that's, you know, right. It's, quite a percentage yeah. if you think about it um and skyline is pretty much dead on and again it's quite runnable so it will be more important to find out what if early effort allows you to still run with good form leg turnover how your quads and your strength is handling the late work yeah and so yeah i i, I propose uh throwing caution to the wind also in triathlon for any olympic distance in that range um, where most of us are trained beyond the distance. So you learn more about throwing caution to the wind um, at that distance than you do by just doing a controlled training day. Great. What's a two and a half hour or two hour Olympic distance going to teach you by being controlled instead mentally and physically overcoming blowing up um, and continuing on and working your way through that is a lot more valuable. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And as we sort of shut down today's weekly word podcast, episode 164, I would challenge you to write out your own race debrief. Many of you have an opportunity to race in these next few weeks. Be certain to capture all that data. Or if you have a big simulation of a training day you might be on or have coming up, be sure to capture that data. All this takes practice. What you want to capture, what carries over, what tidbits you are able to apply to the next session, to the next simulation, to the next race. As you heard in the podcast, those are so critical to review two weeks prior to the next race or maybe a couple days prior to the next simulation. As I often do at the end of the podcast, I hope you try to leave a review. It helps people find this podcast. If you have an idea on how to make this podcast more beneficial to you as you progress through your own ultra endurance journey and aim to live this lifestyle while managing work and family, please let me know. You can always shoot me an email simply by going to aimcoaching.com. Well, there you have it. Another weekly word podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It's been quite amazing to see how this podcast continues to grow and who has been listening. It's been funny. I get numerous jokes, needles from athletes that I see out there on that. It's not really a weekly word podcast, but more like a monthly word podcast. But as I told them, I'm not changing the name right now. And someday, someday it might be a weekly word podcast again. In closing, if you take anything from the weekly word podcast, may it be the athlete's mindset. You don't need to be an elite athlete to approach your training and daily life like an elite athlete. It has nothing to do with skill or talent. It has only to do with your intention and your own actions. Thank you.